Good morning, Grace Church. You may be seated. I'm sure that many of you have probably heard the story that I'm about to tell you, but I think it's a story that bears repeating. It's a beautiful story. It's the story of five men who set out to take the gospel to a tribe in Ecuador that had never heard the gospel before. And this tribe was known as the Alkins. And that very term, Alkin, means savage. So this particular tribe was known for being a hostile tribe, being a, a tribe that would just randomly kill people who they came in contact with. And so these five men set out to take the gospel to this tribe. Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, and Roger Eudorian. And within just a few days of making contact with this tribe, all five men were found speared to death. And in the two following years, Elizabeth Elliott, wife of Jim Elliott, who was speared to death, went and lived among a more docile tribe there in Ecuador. And while she was spending time with this more docile tribe, she came across a young woman named Dayuma. And Dayuma was actually a runaway from the Alkin tribe. And Dayuma began to teach Elizabeth about the culture and about the language of the Alkin people. And Dayuma herself ran away because her family was also killed by this Alkin tribe. And Elizabeth Elliot had the conviction that she was to finish the mission that her husband had started, that she was going to go back to the Alkin people and share the gospel with the Alkin people. And so her and her then three-year-old daughter went to live among the very people who killed her husband and killed the father of her daughter. And about 20% of this particular tribe became Christians and began to profess Christ. And in fact, one of the very first people to profess Christ was a man named Minkay. And Minkay was actually responsible for spearing two of the men and killing them. And what's crazy about this story is that Minkay actually had the opportunity to baptize the son of Nate Saint, whom he had killed, into Christ. And this is a, a great story, a beautiful story of what can happen through the gospel and the reconciliation that happens in the gospel. But my question for us this morning is how? How is it that Elizabeth Elliot was able to go to these people who had taken the life of her husband, who had killed the father of her child? How was she able to go and to love them? Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can say we might have a little bit dis different disposition toward these people. That we might be struggling with, okay, you want to take the, the life of my spouse? You want to take the father of my child? Fine, have it your way. They, he was just trying to love you. Burn in hell. That might be our response if we're not careful. That our sinful disposition might get in the way and say, have it your way. Let judgment fall upon you. But that wasn't Elizabeth's response. And I'm convinced that it wasn't her response because she thought herself more like the Alkin people than unlike the Alkin people. That she thought herself a great sinner in need of great grace from a Savior, just like the Alkins needed great grace from a Savior. And she wanted them to have the hope that she herself had. But as we approach the last chapter of our book in uh, Jonah today, we're going to see that Jonah has a very different attitude toward the Ninevites. And it's not an attitude anything like what Elizabeth has. His is an attitude that he, he wants to withhold grace from them. He, does, he wants them to receive the destruction for the, the evil that they've done. And he's not happy that they have repented and God has relented in his anger toward them. And this is going to be my main point today. When we fail to give grace to others, we demonstrate that we ourselves do not understand the grace that God has given to us. 
So just a little bit of background of where we've been in Jonah. Uh, Jonah has been told by God to go to this people of Nineveh, uh, tell them that uh, God's going to destroy them for their wicked ways. Um, and Jonah's obviously, he's been running from God. Uh, he goes through this long journey of being thrown overboard. Uh, he's laying at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, he cries out to God. God, you know, causes a fish to swallow him up, spits him out on land. Finally, Jonah goes. He tells the people of Nineveh they're going to be destroyed. They say, okay, we need to repent. And God relents. And so that's where we pick up. Uh, let's go ahead and read through our passage this morning. Let's go ahead and start in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, because I think it'll transition a little bit better for us. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. And now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. So let's just start here in verse 1, right? Uh, the Ninevites have repented. God has relented. He's not going to destroy the, destroy the Ninevites. Uh, but it says here that Jonah is very displeased and exceedingly angry. And we have to ask ourselves, why would Jonah be angry about this, right? His ministry has just been successful. He's gone. He's told these people that God's going to destroy them, and they actually repent. Well, I think that Jonah is angry uh, because, quite frankly, th these are a very evil people. This, uh, these Ninevites were, it was known as the city of blood. Uh, they were very violent people. And in fact, they had been very violent toward the Israelites, Jonah's people. And so there's some bad blood between the Israelites uh, and these Ninevites. And Jonah just really wants them to be destroyed. He wants them to be wiped off the face of the earth. And so he's very displeased that God is re relenting and not destroying them. He really wants them to actually be no more because of the bad blood between them. Uh, but I want us to, to look at a passage of Scripture this morning where Jesus addresses our failures where we have seen so much grace from Him and our failure to give grace to others. All right, so I want us to turn in Matthew chapter 18, uh, verse 21 through 35. And this is actually the parable um, of the unforgiving servant. Let's read through that. Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 
Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one of them brought to him, the one who owed him, 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him money, who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should I not have mercy on your, or should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So here, this, let's take a look at this unforgiving servant, right? This unforgiving uh, servant is a servant who owes the king a lot of money. And he doesn't have the money to pay the king when his, the king's asking him to pay this money. And so uh, the king says, okay, I'll sell you and I'll sell your family into slavery and I'll get my money one way or another. And he pleads with the king, and the king actually forgives him all of his debt. And what does he do? He goes out and he finds one that owes him money, a fellow servant of his who owes him quite less than what he was forgiven, and he demands that his fellow servant pay him. And when he says, I don't have the money, he starts to choke him. He starts to, to wring his neck. He wants him to have to pay what he owes him. And so, in failing to see the grace that he himself had been given by the king, he fails to give grace to his fellow servant. And Jonah's just like this, isn't he? That's, that's Jonah's attitude right now because Jonah has pled for grace. Remember, Jonah was lying at the bottom of the ocean because he was running from God. He, he was refusing to do what God had told him to do, and he's lying at the bottom of the ocean, and he pleads with God, and God has mercy on him. God has grace on him, causes him to be swallowed up by that fish and be saved by this fish, right? And time and time again, Jonah's experienced this grace. Uh, but in his failure to understand and see this grace that he's been given, uh, he fails to give grace to these Ninevites. He doesn't want to see them forgiven for their sin. For, sure, he's fine with himself receiving mercy and grace, but don't give it to them. They're, they're the bad ones, right? But we do this too, don't we? That, that we who have begged for God's forgiveness and have received God's mercy and forgiveness, we sometimes look down on others around us and and we were like, okay, I, I'm okay with myself receiving grace, but that, that person over there, they're really bad. I don't want you to give them grace, God. And I have an example of this. I, I remember uh, actually discipling a young man about 10 years ago. And uh, he had a father who had kind of tr treated his, his mother and himself uh, badly. Um, but later in his life, his father had repented and had come to Christ. And uh, this particular young man was having a, a struggle with the fact that his father wouldn't have to pay for all the things that he had, his dad had done to him, his mom and himself. And I said, you have to be really careful with that because you've got to realize there's a substitute that bore the wrath for his sin. That now he stands in Christ and he's been forgiven that sin and that, that penalty has been paid by Christ. And if you're not okay with that substitute for him, you can't be okay with the substitute for yourself. That you yourself have received grace upon grace and you have to be okay with that substitute. But we sometimes want to withhold 
giving grace to others. Let's look at another uh, second passage where Jesus addresses Jonah's attitude here of, of uh, failing to see all the grace that he's received and so failing to give grace to the Ninevites. And it's the prodigal son. It's in Luke uh, chapter 15, 11 through 32. And while this is often uh, titled the prodigal son, I think actually a better title for this uh, parable would be the, the parable of the self-righteous older brother. Because that's really who Jesus is addressing here. Uh, because this self-righteous older brother is actually a symbol of Israel. And Jesus is kind of preparing Israel for the inclusion of the Gentiles. And, and Israel does not want uh, to, to have anything to do with the Gentile, uh, Gentiles being brought in to the family of God. Uh, because they think that they're the family of God. And they don't want those nasty Gentiles being brought in to the family of God. So let's just take a look at this passage of the prodigal son and see if we can draw a parallel between Jonah and this self-righteous older brother. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. There he squandered his property uh, in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Here comes our Jonah. Now his older son was in the field, and he came, drew near to the house, and he heard the music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. Now let's see if these words sound familiar here from verse 1. But he was angry. He was angry and refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. So let's look at two areas here where this older brother kind of just completely misses the amount of grace that he himself has received and, and therefore fails to give grace to his young, younger brother. Uh, and it's an area of sonship, right? That this older brother fails to see that his sonship is not something that he's obtained for himself. And he's like appealing to his works. Look, I've never left you. I've always done what you told me to do. And he thinks that his younger brother can lose his sonship based on what he's done. He's like, look, he went out and squandered all this property. And, and he doesn't even deserve to be your son. He won't even call him his brother. He says this son of yours, right? So he's, he's got this high and mightiness about him. And he's failing to see that his sonship is by grace and grace alone and God's providence alone. 
I mean, if we think about it, this older brother could have been born the son of one of this man's servants. And then all this talk about inheritance and benefits to being this father's son kind of go out the window, don't they? But it's by grace that he is a son. What other benefits were there for this older brother of being a son by grace? Well, he fails to recognize that he's been eating off his father's table his entire life. That he's been served by his father's servants his entire life. He's been treated like royalty his entire life by no doing of his own, simply by the grace of God and being a son. Well, Jonah fails to see this as well because uh, he's taking great pride in being an Israelite, but it's only by God's grace that he's an Israelite. It's only by, I mean, if you think about it, Jonah could have been born a Ninevite, the very people he claims to hate right now. And he could have been one of them. But only by God's grace was he an Israelite. And what about the benefits of being an Israelite? Well, the Israelites had the oracles of God. None of the rest of the world had the oracles of God. At this point, it would have been most of the Old Testament that they would have had in direct uh, revelation from God. The rest of the world would have had the general revelation of God, but they didn't have the Bible. And so... Uh, Jonah fails to see just how much grace has been given him to be part of Israel. And so he's looking down on these people who have not had the same privilege, and he's casting his judgment saying, you know, I basically want them to be destroyed. Have grace on me, but destroy them. And so Jonah fails to give grace to these Ninevites uh, where he's been given much grace. But we fall into this mindset too, don't we? We somehow think that our sonship, our being included into the family of God, was by something that we had done. That, that it's because of our works or, or you name it that, that we're included in, into the family of God. And that's not the case at all. That uh, when we think this way, when we think that we were included in the family of God because of something we did, then we begin to look down on others saying, you know what, you need to, you need to get your act together. You need to be more like me. And I want to ask us, is that really what happened? Did we just wake up one morning and get a, say, you know what, today I'm getting my act together? Or did God, in a great act of grace and mercy, rip from our hearts? Like, did he rip our hearts out of our chest, those stony dead hearts, and replace them with a heart that beats for him, that loves the things that he loves and hates the things that he hates? That's what happened, and that's the grace that we've received. And so we need to not look down on the rest of the world who has not received that grace that we have, and we need to long and have compassion for them that they might know the hope that we have in Christ by grace alone. Well, Jonah continues in verse 2 with another statement that shows how blind he is to the grace that he's received from God. Let's read it. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, I want to ask, why does Jonah know that God is a God who's abounding in steadfast love and he's merciful and slow to anger? Why does he know these things? It's because these are the very words that were given Jonah's people, the Israelites, when they had messed up royally. Just a few days prior to God giving them these words, God had said, don't make for yourself a graven image. And what happened? Moses goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and all the people gather their gold together and make this gold calf, and they begin to worship this gold calf, and it says they rose up to play, and whatever that means, I'm sure it's not good that they were doing around this golden calf that God has said not to do. And Moses comes down the mountain, and he sees what they're doing, and he smashes the tablets against the foot of the mountain, and he knew that God was not going to be happy. 
that God had every right to destroy the Israelites right then and there. And so Moses goes before God and he pleads on their behalf, have mercy on these people. Have grace upon these people. And these are the words uh, that, that God said to Moses in Exodus 34, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. Present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain, and no one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let the flocks and herds graze opposite that mountain. And so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Listen. The Lord passed before him, and uh, he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. These were the very words that Jonah's people had received because they had messed up bad. They had sinned greatly against God. They had received grace and mercy. And yet Jonah's failing to see just how much grace that he's received. He's, his people shouldn't even be a people, but by the grace of God. Well, when we feel, fail to uh, see God's grace toward us, we're clearly not thinking rationally. And we see Jonah continue in his irrational thinking in verse 3. He says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And why do I say this is irrational thinking? Well, one, um, if the Ninevites have repented, that means there's going to be less violence among the Ninevites. And it also means there's going to be less violence toward the Israelites from the Ninevites. So this should be a good thing that these people have repented, right? It, it makes no sense that Jonah would be upset that, that these people have repented and God is showing them favor. It should be a good thing. But also, um, excuse me, <laughs> lost my train of thought. Uh, life, uh, like I said, life for everyone should be better. But Jonah really wanted to go before the. Does, does Jonah really want to go to before the judgment seat of God when he's in an argument with the judge himself? Like Jonah's not showing a, a very uh, good attitude toward God, and he's saying, "Take my life from me." And that makes really no sense to be so angry with God and say, "Take my life," because now you're going to go stand in front of God, and that's not the place that you want to be when you're angry with God is before His judgment seat, right? Well. The Lord, seeking to get Jonah to see his folly and being angry, he asked Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? Now, of course, God knows the answer to this question. The answer to this question is no, you don't do well to be angry, Jonah. But this is a tactic that I might use with my girls sometimes, right? Let's say we're riding along in my truck and they're in the back and one of them has a toy. And the other sister takes the toy from the other. What I might do is say, do you think it was nice of you to take that toy from your sister. And if their pride levels at around a one, what they'll say is, no, I don't think it was nice. Well, what do you need to do? I need to apologize. I'm sorry. That's, that's what they would do if their pride level is at a one. But if their pride level is at a 10, what are they going to do? They're going to start, you know, just making up every excuse and trying to justify their actions for what they've done. It doesn't matter. Like, oh, it was, it was mine first. I had it first. That's actually my toy. And so they're going to try to start justifying their actions. But if their pride level is at a five, what might they do? Well, they don't want to give me the satisfaction of knowing that they know the answer, so they're just going to stay quiet, right? And that's exactly what Jonah does here. He doesn't answer God, even though God says, you know, do you do well to be angry? 
God's pri Jonah's pride level is around a five right here, and he just kind of stays quiet. And we're going to see later on it kind of ramps up around verse 9. But right now he's just, I'm not going to give you the satisfaction, God, of knowing that I know the answer to this question, that I don't do well to be angry, and I'm just going to go off in my pride. So Jonah silently goes about his business without answering God, as we see in verse 5. And it says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. And Matthew Henry describes much of this scene. I'll try to just paraphrase it the best I can. He says that Jonah is really just going out of the city uh, because, first off, he doesn't like the, the Ninevites. And he wants to be far away from them. But he really is just waiting to see the fire and brimstone come down on the city. So he's made for himself a booth to kind of shield him from the elements a bit. And he's got his popcorn and his Coke, and he's just like, I'm about to watch this show. I'm about to watch it go down. These people are about to get wiped off the face of the earth that I don't, I don't like very much, and it's going to be awesome. Uh, but that obviously doesn't happen because God has now relented and is angered toward them because they have repented. And next we see, despite Jonah's pride, God's grace comes to him once again in verses 6 through 8. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. So really what I, I want us to note here is God's sovereignty, and especially his sovereignty for his people. And Josh actually touched on this last week with Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And I want to say that God is having grace on Jonah here, that he's having grace in two different ways, right? Two different ways does, does God show Jonah grace, and one is with the plant of grace, right? And we like the plants of grace because, you know, Jonah's suffering. Uh, he's got the, the sun beating down on him, but he doesn't have anything really shielding his head. And God causes a plant to come up over him and shields him from the sun that's just beating down on him. And we love this type of grace. We love when God comforts us. We love houses and cars and uh, bank accounts and medicine. And we love all the comforts that God gives us, these plants of grace. And they are grace. They are meant to point us to the day when we'll need those things no more right? The, the day of perfection in heaven, that's what this grace is meant to show us. But I'm convinced that if that's all that God does is give us these plants of grace, that we'll fail to love the creator as much as the plants themselves, right? Because he has to, he has to wake us up. He has to shake us and show us this is who I am, and you're not seeing me because there's a plant in the way, all these comforts that you're seeking after, right? And so that's exactly what God does here with this worm of grace. God appoints a worm to come and cut down this shade for Jonah because he knows that Jonah's heart is not right toward God right now. And he's, he's needing to show Jonah, this is who I am. And I can remember, uh, you know, I've experienced some of these worms of grace in my life. I'm sure you have as well. Uh, I, I remember being in college and I was basically running from God, much like Jonah was running from God. I was living a very rebellious life, kind of doing what I wanted to do. I didn't really want anything to do with God in a sense. I wanted to be my own God. I wanted to make my own rules. And God allowed me to experience some of these uh, worms of grace, as it were, as I experienced some of the greatest anxiety attacks and panic attacks and depression that I'd ever experienced in my life. And in the moment, it was horrible. 
But it, the only thing that would draw me out of these anxiety attacks and these panic attacks was opening up the Word of God and seeing the promises of who God is and the glory of who God is. And that relieved the anxiety and the depression. And it was very much a, a worm of grace. It was God having grace on me, even though it didn't feel like grace at the time. At the time, it felt like the worst thing ever. But God was shaking me and waking me to the reality of who he is. And that's exactly what God was doing here through this uh, worm. And Charles Purgeon puts it this way. I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Right? When the seas are calm, we're basking in the sun, everything's nice, we're not really paying much attention to God. But when that sea starts to get rocky, when it starts to, the waves start to crash us, that's when we really see who God is. That's when we call out to God, and he shows us his great mercy and grace to us. R.D. Phillips highlights this grace here toward Jonah. He says, this episode shows God's gracious patience in dealing with his servants, how much the Lord had put up with Jonah, but he was still patiently prodding, patiently challenging Jonah's thinking, patiently correcting the attitude of Jonah's heart. It is in this patient grace of God that any of us finds hope to persevere in faith. Since we are so much like Jonah in our indwelling sin, how many times might God have well have just given up on us, but he does not. In amazing condescension, more patient than the most loving mother of toddlers or the most enduring father of teenage children, God bears with our weakness and sin and never gives up on our salvation. He sees the end from the beginning and knows the glory that he will win for himself through his patiently persevering grace. And we see God continue to lovingly show Jonah his errors in verse 9 through 11. It says this, God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So three, three items that I want to address here. Uh, one being the right interpretation of these 120,000 uh, people who don't know their right hand from their left, because I think it's going to be important that we get a handle on what the right interpretation is, because there's uh, several interpretations. I'll deal with two of them. Second, uh, that God showed Jonah that we, he will have compassion on whom he'll have compassion, and he'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. And three, that God shows Jonah his irrational thinking. All right, so let's just first deal with the, the right interpretation of 120,000 persons here who don't know their right hand from their left. Uh, some people would like to make this out to be the children of Nineveh. And they, the reason that they appeal to this is to try to preserve some type of in innocence among children, that they don't know their right hand from their left yet because they're not old enough to know their right hand from their left, and that they don't know what they're doing uh, toward God, those types of things. But I think this is the wrong interpretation. And actually, archaeological findings would substantiate that this is the wrong understanding because archaeological findings would say that there was only about 120,000 people total in Nineveh. So who are these 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? Well, it's, it's everyone in Nineveh. And the reason that they don't know their right hand from their left is because they have so suppressed the truth of God that they can't make truth of anything else. And that's what happens when we get rid of God. We can't make sense of anything else. All truth goes out the window. You can't substantiate truth in anything other than God because he's the creator of truth. And he is the one who's created all things. And that's really, isn't that where we're at in our culture today? Right? That our culture has tried to get rid of God. And so they say we can't tell the difference between a boy and a girl. Right? But we need to be careful here. 
Because we need to understand that the reason that we understand our right hand from our left, the reason that we understand a boy from a girl, is because God has revealed himself to us in a great act of grace. And so we need to have compassion toward those who don't know the difference between a boy and a girl. Have compassion on those who don't know their right hand from their left. Point two, God shows Jonah that he will have compassion on whom he'll have compassion. God's basically telling Jonah here, look, these are my creation, Jonah. These people, they're mine. I created them. And if I want to have compassion on them, I'll have compassion on them. If I want to have grace, I'll have grace on these people, Jonah. You didn't create these people. I did. And guess what? These people are image bearers of God. And if I want to have grace and if I want to have compassion, I'll do it on whomever I will. Number three, God shows Jonah his irrational thinking. Uh, God shows Jonah that he has, Jonah has suppressed the truth so much that he's happier over, about a plant growing up over his head, and he's more upset about a plant being cut down than he is happy about a people of 120,000 people repenting of their sin and 120,000 people being spared rather than being cut down. And that's irrational thinking, isn't it? So what do we do with all this? How do we keep ourselves from withholding grace from others when we ourselves have received so much grace? Well, one, we need to look to the cross. Because it's in the cross of Christ that we see the holiness of God. And it's in the cross of Christ that we see just how bad that we are because our sin was punished on another, on Christ Jesus. And we see how wicked it was as God's wrath poured out on Christ. And it's in the cross of Christ that we see just how much grace that we ourselves have received, and that this, this grace should make us want to be gracious toward others. And we need to stay in the Word, because all over the Word it reminds us who we really are in our sinful nature, but our identity in Christ and the grace that we see, we, we've received by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. Texts like these, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Or, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. There is no boasting except in Christ, in Christ alone. Or, finally, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Such grace. Such grace to his people. Well, what might this look like practically? I've got a few different practical examples of what it might look like for us to have grace upon others. Uh, but before I share those, I want to share this, uh, this quote from Paul Tripp because this, this quote has been very helpful for me. And it keeps me having the right attitude when I approach others in ministry. He says this, You are most loving, patient, kind, and gracious when you are aware that there is no truth that you could give to another that you don't desperately need yourself. You are most humble and gentle when you think that, there, that the person that you're ministering to is more like you than unlike you. All right? So let's keep that in mind, that, that the people that we're ministering to are more like us than unlike us. I mean, imagine if you would that there's a spectrum, and over here you have the whole infinitely holy God, perfect in every way, never sinning, and then over here put the, the worst possible person that you could even imagine. And then be honest with yourself and put yourself on that spectrum. And do you fall closer to that, that worst person you could possibly imagine or the infinitely holy God? 
And if we're being honest, we know that we fall closer to the, the worst person that we could possibly imagine. And so if we keep that in mind as we go to minister to people, that it's by gra the grace of God uh, that we've been called into his family, then, then that will change the way that we do ministry. So how, how about some examples here? Well, let's say that we go out to eat uh, after church today. We're sitting at a table, and there's a table kind of close to us, and the, the people at the table are using a lot of profanity, using some obscene language. It would be really easy for us to kind of wag our heads and just kind of be in disgust at their language. But what might it look like if we thought ourselves more like those people and sought to give them grace, sought to give them the gospel in some way? I don't know, maybe even pick up their tab for them. I'm not saying what to do. I'm just saying think of yourself more like those people than unlike those people in those moments. Maybe you want to go to the abortion clinics and minister to the mothers who are about to murder the child in their belly. That's a good thing to do, but we need to see ourselves more like those mothers than unlike those mothers, in the same need of grace as those mothers. That's where we're at. We're, we just need the same amount of grace that they need, and so see ourselves more like them than unlike them. Maybe it's speaking out against the, the wave of lies of the LGBTQ community. We need to do that. God has called us to speak out against that, but we need to do it with compassion, knowing that we ourselves would not know the difference between a boy and a girl were it not for God actually intervening within us and showing us the truth of who he is, that we wouldn't know our right hand from our left were it not for God intervening in our lives. And so we need to approach these people understanding the amount of grace that we've received and desiring the same amount of grace for them. Grace Church, we bear the name Grace. It's on our sign out front. Let's be a people who show the world that we know how much grace that we ourselves have received and therefore give grace to others. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for being so gracious to us that we ourselves are such great sinners in need of a great Savior, and you've provided that great Savior, that you've opened our eyes to the truth of who you are by grace alone, uh, that you've shown us our sin. We desire for you to continue to eliminate that sin from our life. But Father, use us to show your grace to the world. And may we approach the world as those who have received so much grace, not being self-righteous as we go, but being those who have been humbled by the gospel, that they might know the hope that we have in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.